0: Hello and welcome to series 2 of the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell-Shaw. In 2018, I was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, and since then, I've made it my mission to make the most of each and every passing day. This has led me to cycle on a tandem from Bristol to Beijing. Covid got in the way and I had to take a break, but now I'm back on the road. Before you hear this episode's conversation, here's a little snippet of what has happened to me on my travels over the last week. This week has been a long time coming. It was just over five months ago, almost to the very day that I had to leave Chris just outside of Kempton in Bavaria and make an unexpected return to the UK. So my thoughts on coming back five months later with so many things quite different, I wasn't really sure how I would feel about it. And it's actually bizarre. I was very happy to take each day as it came up until the start of the ride, rather than anticipating, rather than going forward. I was enjoying my life before back in the UK. And by and large, I'm still enjoying it now back on the road. I'm still living. I'm still alive. There are still opportunities on each and every day. So in some ways, it's been less of a change than I anticipated. Though in other ways there are many things that I've had to get used to rather rapidly over the last few days that I was just not prepared for. So my dad and I flew out to Memmingham airport and that afternoon I was reunited with Chris, the tandem, which was super, super cool. After a bit of a wash off, uh, a bit of oil on the chain and some repacking, we were ready to go. A huge thanks to Garby and Yosef who looked after Chris. Over the last five months and kept him in amazing working order now getting back on Chris wasn't quite the dream start I had envisaged I was very used to riding my road bike back in Bristol it flies you know when you put the power down you just kick off and you go faster I can ride without hands on the handlebars it's balanced perfectly None of this is the case with Chris. Chris is literally like a tank on stilts in the nicest possible way. There is a lot of weight that I wasn't used to on the bike. We had a few slightly wobbly moments uh, early on. And just the amount of power that's required to get Chris and all the baggage up a hill was a lot more than I had remembered. It's still very doable But it was a shock to the system and it was reminded to me that actually this is not doing things the easy way. I'd been enjoying telling everyone, oh, I'm going to Beijing on a tandem. Look at me. Now, this is the reality. And as my dad will attest to, I spent quite a few hours whinging at him. And I mean whinging, just being like, oh, my God, this is so difficult. I'm having to work so hard on the front. It just doesn't feel like my bike. I don't know if I want to be doing this for the next year. It was a fascinating situation, because at that point, I knew I was whinging, I knew I was complaining, I knew there was a challenge in front of me, all the classic things that this whole podcast is about, how do you deal with a challenge? And I could recognize there was a challenge, and I could also recognize that I was doing a really bad job at dealing with it. And it's all very well saying to myself, or saying to someone else, well, you've got to change your perspective. I'm incredibly lucky to be doing this right now. I have chosen to do this. But it wasn't easy. It really wasn't that straightforward. It was really the third day of riding when I began to enjoy being on Chris again. We were surrounded by these beautiful lush green hills in Bavaria, these quiet roads, wooden farmhouses. It was pretty idyllic, and we'd made some adjustments to the setup, so the steering was a bit lighter. We'd sent a bag back to the UK of some additional stuff that Chris was feeling a lot better. We were also joined by Bossi Werner, who we'll hear from at the end of this segment, who joined for the day between Xiongau and Munich, and it was fantastic to share the ride with Bossy. Now, we were cycling along Lake Starnberg, and we decided, Bossy was like, oh, there's a good, like, cafe stop here. There's a nice lake here. And just as we were slowing down, this lady is sort of stopped and said, oh, this is, you're from Bristol. I live in Bristol. My husband's from Bristol. And we got into this whole conversation. And I ended up going, of <laughs> all things, paddleboarding in this lake when dad and Bossy went swimming. And it was just the most lovely interaction that came out of nowhere that reminded me the joy of traveling, of being much more approachable on a bicycle, being able to go on on the lakeshore rather than on roads. It was a real reminder of some of the amazing things that can happen when you are traveling. Last week we've been fortunate enough to meet some incredible people. I couldn't tell you about them all, but I want to relate a little story from a guy called uh, Simon who let us stay with him and his wonderful family with Judith, Ben and Tom, two bundles of fun at about 2 years old and 4 months old. Simon and I and Dad in fact went out for a run and <laughs> Simon was in the army and he was telling us a course that he went on that he and a mate made an agreement that if either of them made a negative comment during this course, then they would buy the other one a beer. And there was this uh, machine gun that they had to like carry around occasionally. And when Simon's mate got given this machine gun, very, very heavy, absolute donkey of a gun to have to like lug around, really the short straw. And when Simon's mate got given this machine gun, he was like, oh, yes, I absolutely wanted this machine gun. It was so great. And Simon was like, I could see the pain on the inside, but he was not going to complain. And I was thinking about, I called it the machine gun face, the machine gun yes face. And I was thinking about how terrible that face was for me when I could have been putting on the machine gun face and saying to dad, oh, this is just fantastic with the tandem right now. I'm really loving the challenge of the extra hill. And instead I was like, dad, dad, this is really annoying. I don't know if I can cycle this. It's really not like my road bike. I don't feel comfortable at all. Yeah, my dad puts up with a lot of stuff. Anyway, I thought that what would be really interesting for each of these segments is to share this slot with one of the people who joined on the tandem. And this week I wanted to ask Bossy what he made of his time on the tandem. So Bossy, you joined on the tandem yesterday. What was it
1: like? Um, It was good. It was first time I've been on a tandem. I think if you're a control freak, it takes a a bit of time to get used to.
0: But I can without a doubt say Luke is in control and he knows what he's doing. So it's literally just sitting, holding on and pedaling as hard as you can. I paid him a lot to say that. What was the best bit about the day? (laughs) I think the best part is sort of going from A to B. So, you know, every single pedal stroke you take is closer to the finish. And that's so much different to... Cycling from A to A. So I think just that idea of literally every meter we move forward, we're one step closer to the final destination. Right. And that is B2B. Bossy, it was awesome having you. So thanks for joining. Hopefully catch you a bit later on as well. Thanks. All the best for the way forward. Cheers. And that is it. Now you get the chance to listen to a bit more of me talking with Jane Phillips about, well, why... I ended up on this cycle ride at all and a little bit more about the inner workings of my brain as hollow as it is during the last couple of years. I hope you enjoy. I shall um, relinquish my questioner's hat and pass it over to Jane. Jane, thanks very much for joining on the Facing Up podcast.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I, I have really been looking forward to this. I'm thrilled to be here and curious to see what we come up with between us. So let's get started. Uh, We're going to start in January 2018. I'd like to go back to that time and meet the 24-year-old man who would finished his degree at the University of Durham the summer before and had betaken himself to Siberia for a year. Tell us about him. Who was he? What really mattered to him? What was he doing in Siberia?
0: Yeah, 24, I guess in January 2018, I was, I was 23 years old. I actually started in, in Moscow and I ended up in Siberia. The final year of my university, my, my aim was to really try and exit on a high. So I put all my time and energy into my studies, which made quite a marked change from the first couple of years. And that meant that the year following, the year after I graduated, I didn't have any work lined up. And so I spent the first part of that year applying for PhDs, masters, uh, grad schemes, um, consultancy stuff. And then I went out to Russia to teach English. And the purpose behind that was to try and improve my Russian, primarily. So I think, you know, at that point, there was, I I loved adventure. I'd loved adventure since I'd been on my gap year. However, in a lot of ways, my thinking was very different to how it is now. I, I think was expecting to have, you know, a relatively conventional career path that once I'd spent this time out in Russia, I was going to either do a PhD or do a grad scheme and do that for perhaps five years or so. Then maybe do some crazy adventure, cycling, try and go pro triathlon, give that a shot. So I think my horizons were relatively conventional at at that point.
1: That was the word I was just thinking. It was a conventional sort of gap year to um, avoid getting into employment too quickly or committing oneself to a PhD too quickly. Did you actually want to do a PhD then?
0: I think that's a great question. I thought that doing a PhD was the logical extension of my undergraduate degree, of academia, of my intellectual development. I think I saw a PhD very much as, as the pinnacle. I mean, obviously, there's well, careers well beyond academia. But in terms of having to prove yourself intellectually, to me, that the PhD was the way to do that. My brother, John, of course, was doing a maths PhD at Cambridge. I think that was a bit of an influence. And it's really interesting. I applied for several PhDs. And at the same time, I was doing some work in a biotech startup up in Durham, getting some experience in the lab. And I was particularly in that biotech startup. I was trying to find and tell myself reasons why I should love this. And the reasons went something like, oh, well, I'm up on my feet all day. I'm kind of quite active. I'm not sitting down. It's it's intellectually stimulating, isn't it? I look back now and I go... That did not suit me. And I didn't let myself realize that I wasn't really enjoying it because I thought that that form of biology and research and intellectual engagement was the right one for me. And that's what I thought about most of the PhDs I applied to. And it was a bit of a learning experience when I came around to the interviews for them. And I just, I struggled so much to be motivated. I absolutely bummed one of the interviews, didn't really know what I was talking about. And when it came around to the second one, a different university, I realized I just wasn't interested. And I just said, I'm I'm, I'm not going to have the interview. I'm I'm withdrawing. It's just not something I'm doing. But there was another PhD opportunity out in Saudi Arabia with this fantastic plant scientist called Mark Tester. And his whole project was about pipe dream. How can we make crops grow with salt water? There's not very much fresh water in this earth. There's a ton of salt water. How can we achieve that? And I think we, we connected on a lot of different levels, but I loved that idea. And that's what captured me. But even looking back now, I don't think that lab-based research is a happy, would be a happy place for me to be.
1: Right. Well, I've been restraining myself from laughing my socks off at the idea of you spending, you know, 12, 14 hours a day in a lab or, you know, in a library or at your desk at home. (laughs) Um, At any rate, you came to the conclusion that perhaps that wasn't the most sensible way to justify your existence or prove yourself.
0: One of the avenues I was very seriously considering was this PhD out in Saudi Arabia. I felt that was quite different. It was something I was passionate about, the the goal. But now I would recognise that doing lab work is perhaps not the best way for me to contribute towards that goal.
1: Right, so the subject's... Interest you, parts of the world interest you, uh, but there are other ways to achieve these things. Yeah, well, that sounds pretty conventional for the thinking of a 23 year old. I'm not sure how you could have been expected to be able to think differently at that point. <laughs> okay, so basically what really mattered to you was um, figure out what you were going to do next. Okay, so you find yourself in Siberia, and I know that. It's, in addition to the the language uh, training that you were giving yourself and the teaching experience and all of that, that there was a lot of cycling and running going on and you were clearly taking the training for these things very seriously at that point. Where was the balance in your thinking about the things that mattered to you? First, you had a sort of future that you were going to plan as far as work or further study, but you also had this young man who wanted to run an ultra marathon in the Urals, which I find, you know, an extraordinary thing to do. Where was the balance?
0: It's really interesting that you use this word balance, because to me, that is all about balance. For me, exercise is a very key part of how I stay sane, how I unwind, I'm I'm positive. It's, It's a very key part to my life. I think it has its drawbacks in the sense that I spend a lot of time exercising. I think for a number of years, I have aimed to do somewhere between an hour and a half and two hours of training every day, more or less. And that's that's quite a big draw on time, I suppose. That's a big chunk of the day. It is a big chunk of the day. I manage to, at times, make it work very well, having an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. And I, I like to tell myself that... It makes me a lot more productive. The endorphins, I think much, much more clearly after a piece of exercise. I like to see it as a very complementary. I like to think that I do it in a way that means that both areas benefit. You know, I'm fitter, but I'm also able to work harder and focus more effectively. And then after I've worked harder, I can unwind better, I suppose. Right. Okay.
1: So there was no point in this year in Siberia when you just thought, I don't want a job. I don't want any more degrees. I'm going to spend all of my time running and I'll think about all the things later. It was always these two things you were going to do. Plan your future with some kind of employment and keep the endorphins flowing (laughs) so that you can be yourself, right? Have I got it? More
0: or less. I think... I've always been attracted to doing lots of different things. And in in some ways that might be good. In other ways, that means I perhaps lack the depth. So whilst I was uh, doing this running out in Siberia, planning for my future, and I should say that that's a big change from now, that then I think a lot of how I thought about myself and in, in conversations, you know, that the question everyone asks is, you know, what what are you doing next? What's your your career? What's your five-year plan? And it's a question I would ask other people and I still catch myself asking people that, even though now I don't think in those terms in in nearly the same way.
1: It's an age in which people are living out their futures as much as their present because the future has, well, there's so many options. There are lots of things you can do Um, and that's where a lot of energy is focused. Right, so there you are running. Having a good time. Uh, your Russian's getting better by the day, I assume. I hope you're enjoying the teaching. Yeah. Your shoulder's been bugging you for a long time. And finally, you're worried enough that you go and have it looked at by the school nurse, mm. which is extraordinary, really. And by, you know, your accounts in other places, she is pretty horrified at what she sees.
0: Yes. The the reaction was just bourgeois, like, oh. Oh my god. It had taken me a very long time to go to anyone about it. I was living by myself. I was by the end, the lot say the months before I visited the nurse, I was taking photos of my shoulder. And if you look back at those photos now, everyone can see there's something wrong. But at the time, I didn't see anything was wrong. My mum didn't see there was anything wrong. Hindsight is a wonderful thing.
1: It's a wonderful thing. I agree. And when when we get to this Moment at the end of May when it's clear there's something wrong, and you get on presumably a series of planes to get back to the UK and get it looked at. When you left Russia, were you thinking, I've probably got cancer, but please may it not be true? Or were you not second guessing anything?
0: I remember I had a few tests done when I was out in Tumen and. One of them was an ultrasound, and the the doctor said these don't look like cancerous cells. I could, you know, I could understand that much, and I was like, hmm, really, this this kind of seems a bit like cancer. I so I didn't really believe that, or I certainly didn't sort of just accept it and go, oh right, well it's not cancer then. I had a feeling it was pretty serious. I, I guess I had a feeling it was quite likely to be cancer. I was at the airport saying goodbye to the senior teacher, a guy called Mike, and he's like, oh, you know, see you hopefully in a few months. And I was like, "Hmm, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't quite know what will happen, but I don't think it's going to be that straightforward.
1: So you come home, you have a needle biopsy and more tests, you await results. Your mother's a GP. Were you all openly discussing possibility that
0: you were looking at cancer No I knew it was serious that when I arrived at Heathrow my mum, dad and grandfather Graham were all there and Graham being there was quite unusual and I don't haven't asked mum but I think she had a very strong feeling at that stage that it probably was cancer but she never said that and there was not that much discussion about it. It was, let's get the tests done. Let's see what that comes back with. And until we know that, then we we will just be guessing. So let's not worry too much about it. But I remember, you know, I'd come back from Russia incredibly abruptly. And I think it was like a, a Wednesday or a Thursday I arrived back in the UK. And I was like, and mum said that, you know, the earliest they could do a biopsy was the next week. And I was like, are you kidding me? I've come back from Russia at the drop of a hat to some pretty big upheaval and disruption. And I'm going to wait for like another five days or something, another four days. So huge credit to mum and the NHS. Like we've got a biopsy done on the Friday, but then there still followed a period of, I think, two or three weeks. Just
1: waiting that was the interval i wanted to ask you about you've got this intervening time mm. and okay you've got ideas in your head um, people are not putting the worst case scenario out there for discussion what did you do with that time and what were you thinking what 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 was what mattered then
0: i knew i really wanted to see my girlfriend she was She'd been working out in in Cairo that year, and at that point, she was on holiday with her family in Zanzibar. So it was quite a big ask for me to say, I I really want to spend time with you and hang out with you. Like Life feels pretty uncertain, and I'm not that happy right now. And huge credit to her. She and her family made it happen, which was, you know, that's that's a very big thing she's very close to her family uh we would always had a very de- independent relationship wanting the best for each other just doing our, living our own lives mm. I also spent you know we spent some time as a family we went to Wales John and I we were cycling around John was absolutely thrashing my ass on the bike but he was so good about it in the sense of it wasn't lording it over me at all which he could have done and I might have done but he would smash up a hill and just patiently wait at the top and then we carry on riding. And that, I guess that's acceptance, isn't it? That was powerful.
1: And presumably that was quite unusual. Um, you know, you were 24, John was 25. <sighs> Neither of you presumably was, you know, taking many holidays with each other and your parents at that age.
0: Yeah, that was unusual. At that point, I think we were slightly surprised John came back for that weekend. I well, it certainly wasn't like a certainty. And the previous family holiday we'd had was in two thousand and sixteen, so I guess you know two years before that in in the French Alps, which was also cycling. So it was unusual, and you know but it was nice to make the most of that family time. And I think I just tried to
1: keep fit
0: and active cycling.
1: And then on the nineteenth, you you have this consultation, you see the the oncologist. And I have to say, only once, comparatively recently have I sat in a consultation in which an oncologist told a patient that he had cancer and that it would end his life. And in this consultation that was said so gently that you wouldn't have heard it for what it was if you didn't want to. And I'm wondering what that consultation was like for you. What words did your oncologist use? So I think
0: it's important to set the scene a little bit and this is the pre, pre-consultation, I think actually like two or three days before my girlfriend and I we, we cycled actually on the tandem, my parents' tandem to, to Henley and back and I remember on the way back saying to her you know I think it's probably cancer, you know I think it's probably going to be an op involved, you know what I might have my my shoulder blade removed but uh, maybe I get a bit of metal and that means I can compete in the Paralympics. That kind of gives you an idea of how I was thinking about things, which to sort of spell it out is probably have cancer, but it's going to be a relatively minor hiccup and I'll, I'll find a way around it. You know, I'll, I'll make some good come of it. Yeah. So in the consult room, the doctor said, you know, Luke, you have cancer and my heart sank but it's when they said it was a stage four cancer and it had spread to my lungs. And I think the way that he said that was very significant in that it indicated it was a totally different outcome that we were looking at a very different level of treatability.
1: So it was his tone of voice that conveyed that more than the words. So
0: as I remember it, I mean, then I asked, you know, what does this mean about life expectancies? Like, I might as well know. I don't want to hide from this. I don't want to be like pulling wool over my eyes. Um, oh, so you asked it straight out, straight away. Yeah, but complicating matters, the diagnosis changed three times between that first consult and the, the final thing. It, it, in details, it's sort of rare and very aggressive that that didn't change. But I had a sort of kinder outlook on life from that first consultation than what it was then later seen to be. I think it was measured in long months or short years.
1: And when did that change?
0: When did which bit change?
1: Well, it was measured in long months or short years, but elsewhere you've said you didn't expect to be around at Christmas. So at some that diagnosis must have that prognosis, I should say, must
0: have changed. Yeah. So when I initially found out they thought it was something called rhabdomyosarcoma, and that has a sort of, you know, short years diagnosis. But when I did the research for what I ended up being thought to have, that, you know, has, has, has um, not great statistics associated with it. And that's probably not, it's probably not a great thing to look at if you're looking for positivity and the way I had to deal with that because if I believed what I saw in front of me that it was going to happen to me then I you know essentially I was just accepting that I was going to be essentially dead in two years or something or less than that Um, or if the chemotherapy hadn't worked I wouldn't have made Christmas and they weren't really expecting it was atypical for the chemotherapy to work as it did.
1: Presumably you did not know that when you started chemo.
0: No, thankfully they, they didn't tell me they were like, you know, right. Like we're going to put you on the chemotherapy. We're going to give this a, you know, we're going to give this a go. I you know, later had chatted with my oncologist and an oncologist friend and what my response was very atypical. That The, the, the chemo therapy regime that I was on does not usually work very well for what I have been, what I was diagnosed with
1: you've described elsewhere that on the day that you got this news that your father took you out for a run mm. and gave you some transforming advice really about the running itself did it does the running and on that day did the running dispel some of the helplessness that anyone's going to feel in the face of a diagnosis such as this
0: I think that's a great question. For me, running is always a positive action. And it's, it's never been a waste of time. I don't think I would have seen it like this on the day itself. But it was a small positive thing that was making me feel a little bit better about my life, regardless of what had happened. That was going to make me sleep a little bit better at the end of the day. And I think there's a little bit about taking control of your circumstances in the small ways that you can, and particularly when so much is out of your control. And you mentioned Dad gave me some advice when we were out running. And what it was, he said, Luke, if you die from cancer in two months, in six months, in two years, that is awful but there's nothing that we can do about it so instead of worrying about the amount of time that you have which is something that you have no control over instead isn't it better to think about how you want to live today and tomorrow you can't control when you're going to die, but you can control what you do between now and when you die, surely that is the attitude that will make you happiest in the time that you have left to live. And that's really the attitude that I try to take forward, that I'm only trying to sort of make myself as happy and contented as possible in, in a weird sort of way. I would call it a slightly selfish perspective that I'm trying to live doing things that make me happy and fulfilled and and I enjoy and the fact that that might not be for so long well that just makes this time even more precious and that makes the incentive to get the most out of these next days and months and maybe years incredibly high if you don't have much time to live then surely you want to do as much as possible with that time because it becomes immensely precious Back to the run, my dad, I don't think he exactly dragged me out the door, but I was not in a mood to go for a run. I wasn't in a mood to do anything. And he was, he's always been very good at knowing when to push in that kind of context, whether that's going for a run or getting on with some schoolwork. You know, will you feel better at the end of it? And I suppose I did. I wasn't feeling great, but...
1: You might have felt worse had you not done it. Precisely. And I have read in another context that the best treatment for trauma is to move physically. Mm. Um, I've pondered that a lot in uh, relation to your history over the last few years.
0: Yeah. No, certainly for me, exercise has just been, for me, it was such a powerful way of helping myself, I suppose. Not only physically, keeping my body as, as resilient as possible, which was really necessary throughout chemotherapy, but there's a huge, huge mental benefit in the endorphins, the the buzz that you get from exercise, the more positive mindset that it puts in, the headspace um, that at least I get from going for a run or going for a cycle. And I think there's just such an important part of still being able to take control of your life in a small way to make it a bit more positive. And I think to me, that's a huge part of my philosophy now that there's so much we can't control in life. And it's so important to recognize that. But it's also really important to recognise the bits that we can control, and work on those areas. And if you do those things, you know you're proactive in those areas. You're probably going to feel more fulfilled and contented, and I guess a deeper sense of satisfaction with your life, regards regardless of the other benefits.
1: I do find the the fact of the the running on that afternoon. It's It's terribly moving, but also, you know, an emblem of a certain kind of wisdom, partly related to what you've just described, but also being outside, moving your body, feeling your own power opens the mind to the advice that your dad could then give you, and you'd be in a better position to hear it. Yes. And use it and receive it rather than. Just shrug it off and feel, well, that's easy for you to say, isn't it? Um, yeah. I, I, I think exercise does that for all of us, even for people who never achieve anything in that field, like me. But without it, I have always thought one almost loses one's open-mindedness if one stays in the same place, doing the same thing too much of every day.
0: I think you're absolutely right that... If that advice had been given when I was still moping on on the sofa, no chance it would have gone in. I I think, you know, some of the best discussions that I've had, some of the most open and productive and interesting have been when moving. Um, If that's walking, if that's running. And I think you're absolutely right as well that there's something very natural, very belonging when we are in movement and i think it does change the way how we think and what we're open to hearing and thinking about
1: and one of one of the most striking things about your narrative of life with cancer over this period that the surfaces at every possible time is an openness to finding the things worth doing the things worth thinking about the opportunities that can be Created. I mean, they don't just, you know, present themselves to you full-blown and say, "Here, Luke, you have to find them and then you have to make them." And the exercise has clearly opened you up to a lot of things that are not that common in my experience of people with um, severe illness. Sometimes, opening up the consciousness is a, can be a very difficult, if not impossible, thing to do. And this. It is very striking to me, at any rate, that you know, literally from day one, uh, you were right there. I would
0: hate to come across that I somehow had it nailed from day one because that simply wasn't the case. It was, it was hugely traumatic, and I had a huge amount of support from my my mum, my dad, my girlfriend, to support me and make some of those opportunities happen later down the line. Yes, perhaps I took a more active role in making those opportunities myself. But in those early days, I did have a huge amount of support. I think I was open to those offers of support and what they entailed. And I'd also just like to say that not every day did I sort of smash it. That's absolutely not the case. There are definitely times when I cried into my laptop because I read, you know, I was doing some research on sort of what my form of cancer, you know, what the outcomes were like. And I was like, "Fuck, this is absolutely like and then you have to change your mindset.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I mean, nobody nobody, nobody is open to everything from day one and no one can do it on their own. But it is more common to find getting to the place where you can be open takes a bit longer. And it's, um, you know, a huge, uh, it's just hugely impressive, not just you, but obviously from your father and and, and your mum as well. I would sort of almost
0: push back that it's not impressive. It was more that I was, you know, I was just doing something that was going to make me a bit happier than I was otherwise. That's, I, I, that's my kind of philosophy, my mentality when it comes to these things. Sure, I could have just like said, oh, I'm giving up on life because it's dealt me a pretty rubbish hand at this point. But then I'm just like, I'm the one person who's losing out. I'm sure my mum and dad would be unhappy to see that I'm unhappy. But beyond that, no, no one really deeply cares. Like the person who m- misses out most of all, if you choose not to live your life is the individual themselves. So I would say that this is a, it was a self-interested way of acting to make the most of the time I had.
1: Yeah. Oh, it is self-interested. It's just that people are not always quite so quick off the mark to see where their interest lies that's what's impressive. That's, mm. that's the thing that from that's an interesting point. another point of view, seems to me very clear.
0: Maybe that harks back to our earlier discussion that I've known for some years that exercise is I've been very fortunate to grow up. And for perhaps 10 years, exercise has been a mainstay of my life. So I knew I had that already, I knew it would help. So perhaps that identification early on really helped.
1: Yeah, you were well placed. I, I agree. In, in that respect, you were so you started this treatment aggressive chemotherapy which you know required days in hospital sort of every three weeks for what four months something like that five months yeah and you know i would just pause here to observe that you know it's impossible for any of us who have not experienced that sort of treatment um that you can't to imagine just how bad it makes you feel i mean i I have traversed that territory with a friend some years ago and Mm. i remember vividly, the state that she was in at the end of each hospital stay. And it was even being right there with someone. You're very conscious that this does things to a person's body that, mm, are yeah, they're beyond your grasp if they're not happening to you. So there you are, it was sort of initiated into the grimness of all of that. Mm. And, okay, and then... The
0: unthinkable happens. Mm. Tell us. My first round of chemotherapy started on a Tuesday. And I went in with a totally naive perception of what was possible. I think that afternoon there was a, a football England match. And I invited my friends round, and they, the the doctor said I could bring beers in, and I was like, "Great, I'm going to have beers while i was having chemo. I'm going to have my mates. I'm going to watch some TV, um, and yeah, I'm going to have a drip in my arm with with chemotherapy coming in." Um, and my friends came round, and about halfway through the match, I yeah, I, I couldn't look at the screen, like I couldn't focus on anything. I was just in this sickly, semi-conscious state, I suppose, and the the lethargia and the perpetual feeling of un- unwellness. You know, you don't want to eat any food. No food tastes nice. The smell of the toilets, that disinfectant, means you want to avoid the bathroom. The, the smell of the-, the cardboard cartons that you have to pee into. I-, I, you know, even thinking about them now, there are some very strong associations with the, the smell. You-, you don't sleep well because there's constantly a drip in your arm that, and there's a machine that beeps if you kink it. Uh, and because you haven't been moving during the day, there's nothing to make you want to particularly sleep at night. And so there's you know, constant hummings and tickings. And so it was on Friday morning, I'd sort of finished my chemo, but I was still in hospital overnight and about 4 a.m. there's a phone call. I can't remember if it was my mum or my dad in the room. They answer the phone, and they say that my brother John has died. It's impossible to know what to make of that.
1: Could you make anything of it?
0: I I understood the reality of, of what it meant. In any emotional way, in any grieving sense, that never happened. That actually never happened. What happened was a a, a loss, an absence. It, it felt very muted. The the chemotherapy turned my life upside down. It's like um, a a sledgehammer, you know, wrecking ball smashing into the side of your life. This is like you're standing. And part of the ground gives way beneath your feet, but you can shift your balance to the other foot so you stay standing. So I'd lost something, but i it's taken me years to know what I've lost, I suppose. And I think being in chemotherapy with a cancer diagnosis at that point, it gave me a license not to grieve, I think, because I knew I had to just focus on myself.
1: Yeah, the next day I had to be lived. So, this unthinkable thing has happened. John is gone. And yet, the inexorable cycle of treatment goes on. A couple of weeks later, uh, you finish your chemo, you've got a couple of weeks before it starts again. My recollection of the time is that during the interval between the two cycles, there was John's funeral and the day after that, uh, you went back to the hospital. Yes. And I don't want to dwell on those few weeks very much, but during that time when you're regaining your balance from the chemo or trying to um, preparing for a funeral, what did you do in order to get to the next day?
0: I think I was able to take an attitude that meant I didn't focus too much on John's death. And I didn't feel it as acutely as I might have done. I think it was my mum and my dad who... I had it much worse at that point because they were the spectators on both of these events and they could fully appreciate what both of these events meant. Yeah. But I was in the middle, which meant that I sort of carried on trying to look after myself. I, In some ways, it's probably very self-centered and I, I don't make apologies for that because that was the only way I was going to get through it. I spent a weekend, the, the, two days before the funeral, in, in the Cotswolds with some very close friends, and we went walking because that was—I wanted to hang out with these people. They were kind enough to give up, you know, their time at short notice to come down. And in that sense, life goes on. Those things were still really positive things to happen, and perhaps they were even more important that I was able to do them, given I'd just. Um, Lost John
1: it is the most extraordinary sequence of events outside you know a war zone or a natural disaster that one is ever likely to encounter. It was a huge a time of such crisis and such trauma, yeah that I would have thought simply waking up the next day and getting up and getting through the day was itself, well, quite, well, on the one hand necessary, but also a significant achievement. Yeah. I I was also
0: pretty, (laughs) I was pretty washed out. I, that Friday that John died, that afternoon, I didn't know any better. So I went for a 30 mile cycle ride because I thought, well, thought I could do it. And I think that was my way of getting space and trying to sort of just process. But that also sort of knocked me sideways for the next two days when I was just lying in, in bed anyway because of the chemotherapy and then fatigue on top of that. I wasn't really in a state of thinking. I don't no, think.
1: I can, that I have no trouble imagining. So imagining it just thinking would be mm. not relevant to the physical and emotional state you were in yeah so the treatment went on um september came and um, you take your place for an infill at oxford in water management which is um discussed at some length with jeremy sigmund in another in an earlier podcast and if you're if our listeners haven't um, heard that one, they should go back and listen. It's, um, it's a good one. It talks about that period of starting something new while, in, while having chemotherapy, followed by radiotherapy, followed by surgery, doing a degree, meeting lots of new people. And at the end of that, by the time we get to summer 2019, you are taking up a five-month teaching post at the University of Central Asia in Kyrgyzstan. So we are back in Central Asia. At this point, you've lived quite a long time by sarcoma standards. And there's no way of knowing how long your good health at that time would continue. And at that moment, you choose to go to a different part of Central Asia, to Kyrgyzstan. I mean, what is it about this part of the world that calls you so strongly that at such a moment when, you know, basically everything's open to you and that's where you go what what took you there what was the calling so to, to again
0: set the scene a, a little bit more which I hopefully will make it clearer of sort of why i went to central asia when i when i got my diagnosis i didn't expect to start at oxford when i started at oxford there were only very tentative plans to celebrate christmas and, and new years because we just weren't really sure and I, when I was diagnosed, I don't think I ever expected to get to the end of my treatment cycle either to finish my radiotherapy. So all of that was quite unexpected. There was just a huge amount of uncertainty over the future. And, but by that point, I had identified that if I wanted to do a big adventure, then it was going to be cycling around the world. The first time that really became an option was, was March. When I finished my my radiotherapy and I had a scan, and everything was at that point, you know, it was looking fine. And I was like, that's actually the first point of freedom from geographically being limited to the UK. And at that point, I was very tempted to start cycling, but I decided to finish the master's at Oxford because it was a place that I really enjoyed with some people that I loved, and I wanted to finish the thing that I started. Come round to when I was making the decision about University of Central Asia. Again, I was like, is this going to be something that I regret doing? Because maybe I'm not going to, you know, by the time Christmas comes, I might have a positive scan as in a, a, something shows up on the scan result and I won't be able to start. Very, very real, if, if not likely. It was an opportunity that excited me. I think I have to put it in those terms of, the best decisions when I look back that I've made in my life are ones where I follow my nose. I can't really put my finger on it, but it's something that excites me. So playing the bassoon or the bagpipes, it's kind of this mix of impulse and, oh, wouldn't it be cool? Not necessarily thinking too hard about it. And certainly by this point, I knew that I, I felt very strongly about wanting to live a life rich in experiences. And to me, going to Central Asia was, was part of this. It was gonna to go to a part of the world that I found fascinating. I speak Russian and it's got these beautiful mountains, vast open vistas that seem to go on in an unlimited sense That maybe ended in snow-capped mountains. It's an interesting meld of um, Soviet culture on one hand, the nomadism, um, in at least some parts of Central Asia, which is a very, has its own very rich culture and, and tradition. And then also an influx, over a thousand years ago, of, of Islam, which triangulated with my interest in the Middle East. And I spent you know, quite a lot of time out in the Middle East and studying Arabic at university. So it, had a, it was a sort of confluence between a lot of different factors. And then I had this opportunity to learn about Central Asia through teaching it. Like, What an extraordinary opportunity. I hadn't even finished my master's you know, when I flew out. And that would give me as well the, what I saw as a grounding for when I went through Central Asia on the bike ride to understand and have a network which would allow me to experience and meet people in a much deeper way than I would do if I just sort of rocked up and cycled through it. So there's a multitude of different factors.
1: Right. So it rolled up a number of a number of ambitions, desires, parts of you into one opportunity. Was there for the taking if you were confident enough to say, yep, okay, I'm taking and I'm going. Let's hope for the best when I get there.
0: Yeah, confident. And it was a risk. It was a risk that I wasn't going to be able to start the cycle right because that's what I'd chosen to do. And yeah i might have to start more treatment before I actually before i have the opportunity to start
1: yeah i'm aware that every decision taken since june uh, 2018 is taken in the full awareness that it may be undone sooner rather than later which i would imagine intensifies the whole decision making pro- process quite considerably and focuses the mind on what matters and what doesn't and presumably no thought of uh, phd's and such things have ever entered your, your mind since then
0: certainly my time frames changed quite significantly you were asking before how did 23 year old luke think he thought in terms of you know 3 years well of course i'm going to have 3 years to do a phd or to do the first rung of a graduate consultant job of of course I'm going to have that time I I don't think like that now I think my time thinking at one point was really taking it one or two months at a time or say every three months between scans now I think perhaps more in thinking ahead sort of six months or but I don't really say think beyond what the end of the cycle ride would look like that's very much so far in the future and so much could happen between now and then that it's I've become a lot more comfortable dealing with uncertainty and
1: embracing it to an
0: extent. It's
1: exciting, right? I was going to say, it has a, there's a certain excitement to that, to that as well as, um, I think it's fair to say, a great deal of pressure it exerts too. So while you were teaching in Central Asia, you know, meanwhile back in Bristol, um, you had a whole load of people, it seems to me. Um, helping to bring into a reality your idea of cycling from Bristol to Beijing on a tandem with people on the back who were also living with cancer. I don't want to spend too much time on the bike ride because it's pretty well documented on your B2B website. There are great pictures on that for anyone who hasn't looked at it. Um, I'm not sure I've seen them all. I probably haven't, but I, they're great. You should really take a look. <laughs> so you're Pulling away on this tandem, I mean, I, I have to ask, perhaps partly because uh, I have a sister who's exactly the same distance in age from me as John uh, is from you, and we had a tandem and spent many happy hours as teenagers uh, cycling around. I mean, this the choice of a tandem, I, I see the mission, I do understand it's you know, promoting exercise, I do understand the desire to share it with other people family, friends, uh, other people living with cancer, and to make the point that you can do so much while you're living with cancer. At the same time, I I can't help but wonder, was the tandem a way of taking John with you? I mean, he was such an extraordinary cyclist, and for some of your listeners who won't be aware that he really was the leading light of the cycling team at the University of Cambridge, and the first uh, half-blue ever awarded for cycling was awarded to John posthumously. I mean... Was there any sense that somehow with this other, that you could take him with you this way? Or was that, is that is totally fanciful on my part?
0: As much as I would like to say yes, the answer is no, I'm I'm not, not a saint here. It didn't come about from thinking about John. That's a meaning that came later. I think it doesn't make it any less valid. And I don't think it is a reflection on the importance of John to me, or his influence on my life. I think it's probably more a reflection of just my own, my own priorities, and you know, this isn't something I'm particularly proud to say, but I think John is more of a part of the ride now than he was initially.
1: As if one doesn't always know all the things that are going on in one's mind, nor does one always know the potential for what one has undertaken to do. I was just curious whether in your consciousness at any point there was, there, there sort of surface to this notion of, um, Yeah. No,
0: I think the spirit of the ride itself, of a cycle ride, to me, that's the bit that is in memory of John. I think the tandem to me is just this amazing way of being able to share it with as, as many people as possible. And as far as I consciously no. that's really where it came about from I think if John and I were to do something together we would do it on separate bikes so we could race each other up hills
1: oh no I realize (laughs) it would be important to have the element of competition
0: (laughs) it wouldn't be the same without it
1: (laughs) well by the time the journey started in January 2020 to Beijing I mean you were we'd been living with cancer for 18 months and it's now more than two years indeed. And I'd like to go back for a moment in time, if we could, and look at these two years. At the beginning, there was your diagnosis followed after a very brief, (laughs) a few brief traumatic weeks. You had this expectation that your life would be short, and John's would stretch long into the future. Right. And, so quickly that was that expectation was upended you're 26 you're now older than he was yeah where have you got to with that is that where the grief starts with time passing that you couldn't place before how does one integrate this experience this knowledge into oneself I mean even the whole question of grief aside because I'm not even sure it's quite the right word but it is it it has to be lived with and it's so extraordinary and so unthinkable and yet true every single day. It's
0: utterly perverse in those short weeks between my diagnosis and John's death I remember coming to the conclusion that what bothered me most about death wasn't the dying because of course that will happen to each and every one of us. It was the fact that I would die before what I saw to be my time and that my my friends would carry on living for a few years. I would be you know, at the front of their minds, at gatherings, they'd be like, oh, well, Luke was here, but, you know, but years pass, decades pass. And I would end up becoming, at best, a memory, at best, a fragment of a memory. And, and not only that, but having to remind yourself Or, you know, my friends having to remind themselves of the things that Luke might have done, that if I'd been there, I would have just done. Like, they wouldn't have to exert this mental energy to go, oh, well, if Luke was here, he'd have cracked a joke right now. Like, that joke would have just happened. And I feel that it's this perversity is now my relationship with my brother that I. Have to think that, you know, if the Tour de France is happening, I have to remind myself that John and I probably would have had a great conversation about, like, you know, Chris Froome's performance that day, as we did when I was in Russia, we were talking about Chris Froome and the Giro d'Italia. He had an amazing 80k solo breakaway. That was just the sort of thing that we would talk about, but now I have to remind myself that we would have talked about it. And if I don't remind myself, then John isn't there and John isn't always there I don't think about him every day I wish to say that I do and I do think about him often but it's incredibly messed up that I'm not able to have these conversations with him I suppose but I just I think I also think that there's no guarantees to life and that I am here right now I'm lucky, John is unlucky, lots of other people are unlucky. There aren't any guarantees in life. I was thinking about this earlier, there is not a single guarantee that comes with being born. There is not a single right that comes with life. There is no such thing in my opinion as the Geneva Convention of Human Rights with a capital R. There are no expectations that we can validly have I think there's so much that we can aspire to. I think what the Geneva Convention of Human Rights espouses and what we should work towards, absolutely. But like, I now see it that there was never a time when I had a right to live and I should have expected to live. I guess I just see it the same way with John, and I think that's perhaps quite unusual. I'm not sure everyone would see that. I think a lot of people would see that John has been taken away before his time, and in some senses, yes. In other senses, I would now just say... I don't have a right to life, John didn't have a right to life, and some people are lucky and others are unlucky, and that is just what it is to be on this earth.
1: Yes, I think I would see that as each life having its own integrity and its own shape. And the question of rights, having the right to... Three score years and ten, or however many days people feel it's reasonable to expect, mm. isn't actually relevant to human experience, except in so far as it represents a norm that people see around them, and therefore um, ascribe to themselves and build their expectations on it. And rights don't come into it anywhere; they just don't.
0: But I think I do feel that. I'm never going to be able to live John's life for him. And I think that's part of the tragedy that my life has taken twists and turns. Who knows the twists and turns that might've taken in John's life, but I do have it in the back of my mind that if I can live my life fully, maybe to an extent, and because of John and because of in some ways, the legacy that he's left and the impact that he's left, not that we'd ever have chosen it. If that can make me live my life more then is that in a, tiny way me helping John's spirit live on?
1: <laughs> I think that's much more than a tiny way, if I may say. I don't know. I wanted to ask you about hope. Mm. It's, um, it's a difficult subject. And I have to say that my own experience about hope is that when when hope is gone and sometimes in the course of a life it will be the only thing left is to find new hope Mm. and in order to do that it seems to me one has to reach very deep into oneself and I would be interested to know that when you open yourself and go that deep and I would think encounter yourself in a way you haven't before because it seems to me that's what's required if you're going to find new hope but when you go that deep who or what do you find there that helps you create new hope
0: Mm. that's a great question I think hope is incredibly powerful. I think when I received my diagnosis, it felt hopeless um, for a time. I think as well that there is so much in this world that we can choose to look at aspects that make us despondent and inform and reinforce our sense of hopelessness, or we can change our perspective on what we see and how we live and that can lead to hope. In my case, I looked at these dreadful statistics, no, and the only way that I think I could move forward in, in a positive manner was to say, well, I'm gonna do everything that I can to make sure I'm in that very small percentage that, that, you know, that not necessarily gets through this, but like, that, that gets a lot further. And To me, that was an incredibly powerful attitude. I think that there's sort of two things here. One, there has to be an acceptance of the situation that you're in, but that doesn't mean lying down and being passive. It means, yes, there are now limitations. Yes, there are, there's a certain reality that I have to deal with, but that doesn't mean I have to stop it means that i can i can still do everything i can to give myself the best possible chance and that to me is the positive and the the hopeful attitude that although i didn't have a chance you can never know anything for certain and i i feel some of the events in my life have shown that and i think other people listening will know that there are things that totally unexpected that you you know positive or negative that you never expected would happen you can never know anything for certain and you've got to in my mind do everything in your power to 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 live your best life to to make it the most fulfilling life regardless of what those limitations are because if you don't you're just the person who's losing out i think that's what a lot of my attitude comes down to and so one
1: of the things you've done is is to befriend the uncertainty it becomes your ally because it could be it could be something opening up that's positive as well as some
0: Terrible fate looming over you. Yeah, I have never thought about it like that. But I, I think I'm much more at peace with uncertainty. I don't expect certainty as a pillar of my life. And if something good comes along, then that is fantastic, and that is something to make the most of and to enjoy. But also to remember that that was never yours to begin with, and it's a blessing for however long it lasts, but if it then goes, well, you're lucky to have that experience.
1: Yeah, no, I, I know that outlook well. Nothing is ours permanently. It's, it's sort of all on loan, really. You just don't know for how long. I think this is the
0: thing, though, that as a, as a when I was growing up, you're yeah, sure I could have, like, read a book and understood the concept of this. What I don't know is how to really believe this and understand this deeply if you haven't gone through an experience that makes you look very deep and questions at a very fundamental level and in a very powerful way some of these assumptions that we have and how we live our lives?
1: I think that is a very good question. I'm thinking that we've spent, in one way or another, a lot of time talking about not just... (sighs) the narrative of the last couple of years, but a lot of focus on, if you like, the breaks in that narrative, mm. the the events that brought things to a halt and were hugely disruptive, <laughs> to put it mildly. And the fact that disruption, you know, it presents opportunities to, to search out meanings more deeply and perhaps... <laughs> one would have been able to had the narrative proceeded unbroken and as expected Mm. i'm aware that this pandemic has been the occasion for another break not quite as well not nearly as uh, significant if you like as the others we've been discussing but you know you had to interrupt your ride to beijing and return to bristol for several months Mm. during which you've become a podcaster, you started a book, and I would be very interested to know what we can expect, first of all, when you're going to be back on the bike, if you have any idea. And once you are, what about these other things? Are we going to get live podcasts as you cycle and and a completed book by the time you get back? I mean, What are you thinking?
0: Yeah. um, I mean, this has been... It's been a fantastic time in a lot of ways, this pause. And I think... I would like to see that as a reflection of at least in part my, you know, trying to see the opportunity in in the challenge. And I've learned a lot about how not to do podcasts and yeah, tried tried to get involved with writing other projects as well. And that means that when I restart on the bike, I'm really excited that there will be more. I'll be able to offer more people I'll be able to offer more to people um, in terms of involving them and if there are things that I can share that are interesting being able to do that more effectively than I would have done before uh, very much I hope through the podcast I'm hoping to get back on the bike sometime in August that's soon. yeah yeah it is it is soon part of me was thinking oh maybe I'll leave it till this whole thing calms down but that could be a year, that could be two years, that might never really happen. I think I'll be a lot more happy with myself if I take a bit of a risk, say, well, I'm going to give it a go. And if, it, if I have to stop again, well, then so be it. But at least I've really you know, given it a good shot to keep the adventure moving. And to me, that's, I think, it's, that's very important for me to know rather than I've sort of just given in to the force of circumstance but I'm very much hoping to do the podcast throughout the ride and share. I really believe that everyone has a challenge, have faced multiple challenges, and I'm really excited to meet and share some of the stories of people who I meet along the way who are in situations, who have faced challenges that perhaps are very alien or very different and perhaps at the same time very relatable and to be able to share that story with anyone who wants to listen
1: well my last question um goes back in a few ways and relates to things that you've been saying throughout our whole conversation and that's about the narrative of the last two years it is an extraordinary one by any standard it it just is and i'm sure you're well perhaps you don't tire of people making that observation um (laughs) here you are you've you know through your own initiative through the help of many other people Absolutely. through a certain amount of good luck yep. um you have found opportunities that you've taken advantage of and but you know okay you're still luke you're you're the person you were before and are you ever concerned that you know the sort of willingness that people have to listen to you and engage with you and answer your emails and you know care what happens to you um, do you ever worry that this narrative of these of, of your life live with cancer, that it might in itself come to define you and in some mm. sense limit you? In other words, that you know whatever once made you uniquely yourself is in danger of being smothered by a particular version of yourself over the last two years?
0: That's That's another great question. I was actually talking with a very good friend about this last week, this question of identity, how I see myself, and then how other people see me. The opportunities that have come about from telling my story have been amazing, um, and that's opportunities in terms of you know, support, people getting on board, but also the opportunity to spread or share. My what is partly my story, and to see the impact that has on other people, I had never anticipated what an amazing experience that would be, and something I feel very, very lucky to be able to do and to feel like I have you know have seen the evidence of an impact on some other people's lives. I, I feel enormously privileged to be able to do that and it's not something i ever expected to do at all like i was expecting to you know become scientist or you know some sort of consultant and you know not touch people personally but to be able to do that is a very powerful driver for me but you're right in saying there's this risk that comes with it that i'm then defined as luke with cancer and it's a risk i can't control how other people see me i can control what parts of myself i talk about and what i suppose to the extent you know the image that i portray of myself i think to an extent having been quite public about my journey my sort of cancer diagnosis that will always be part of a more outward identity that people might see however i think what's fundamentally important to me is that it will become a footnote in my life. And actually that's how I already see the experiences I've had so far, that journey I've had so far. The point isn't in a lot of ways in my mind that I had cancer. It's what I've done with that. And if someone comes and tells me about, you know, perhaps a cancer diagnosis they received, what I'm really interested by is what they're doing now to live their life um, in the most positive way possible. In some ways I don't, I do care, but in some ways I don't care about the cancer diagnosis that they received. What I care is like how they're living their life right now. And it's something, in case you hadn't spotted, I feel very passionate about. And I'm really hoping that will come across more strongly than that Luke has a cancer diagnosis. So whilst this is, you know, it's quite a large feature of my life right now, and particularly during the ride, I very much hope and are optimistic that if I, for, for the future that I have as I move towards other tasks I will be seen for what I am then doing yes perhaps there might be a slight framing but it's really about how I'm living my life now and today.
1: That was the implicit question really is whether you could envisage this this part of the story being not all that important that the importance is not so much what happened in June 2018 and the fact that that you're still here, but that the impact on other people of this time is such that what they're going to see is this hugely, hugely appealing sense of purpose, depth of energy, reaching out to a world that I sometimes think people almost forget is there. And it is such a, a good thing. And this is where it seems to me you are genuinely inspirational. Is just reminding people of what, what is out there, what can be done, how unnecessary it is to be limited by how others might choose to see you. Luke, this has been so much more than a pleasure. I really enjoyed it too. Thank you.
0: And that was my conversation with Jane Phillips. A huge thank you to Jane for putting a lot of time and thought into those questions and really drawing out some interesting strands. A big thank you to you as well for listening. I hope you found something in there which resonated with you and perhaps was useful in the way you live your life. The Facing Up podcast will be going under a little bit of a change upon the restart of the ride. The first five minutes of each episode will be a recap of the week on the bike, so you get to hear about everything that's happened And you can also see photos and updates uh, through social media. But the meat of the updates will be coming through the Facing Up podcast. I'm really excited to get back underway and to share the journey and the people who I meet with all of you. Until next week, bye bye.